Hello, and welcome to One Stop Co-op Shop, your one stop for board game news and reviews. This week, game designers Peter Gusis and Michael Kelly will review a cooperative game and have a related design discussion. Hello, I am Peter, and I am here with Mike. Oh my gosh, that was unexpected. Yes, well, welcome to Horror Month. It is October, everybody. <laughs> I didn't know I was supposed to prepare a, uh, a horror voice, but yes, uh, welcome to Horror Month. A little bit late. We had one episode in October without this, but uh, as we mentioned last week, all the rest of our reviews this month will be on horror-themed games in one form or another. And what better way to start it out than with Horrified, which, well, kind of has horror in the name. Yes, it does. And then uh, today, instead of having a design discussion, we're going to have a conversation that was requested by quite a few viewers on the YouTube channel. And that's how Peter and I, who both game with our children pretty regularly, basically our journey to getting them to being into gaming and how we've had successes and difficulties with that. And maybe it'll help those parents or prospective parents out there with your own kind of journey through that. It also works with your immature friends, too. So <laughs> That's a really good point. Before we get into the show proper, we'd like to thank uh, three of our Patreon supporters. Of course, we'd like to thank all of our Patreon supporters, but we're focusing on three today. So we have Level Urfi, Esben Errold Rasmussen, and Chris Powers. How you doing, Chris? So uh, Level Urfi is a co-op lover, and Esben and Chris are both co-op MVPs. So thank you, all three of you, for your support of the channel and our podcast and our content. And thanks to all our Patreon supporters. We could not do this without you. Oh, and guess what? I got a message from one of our co-op MVPs, and they'd like to do a shout-out this week. Oh, awesome. I didn't know. Well, go ahead. Yeah, Colin D. says, keep up the great work, guys. <laughs> We're just going to have a message from Khaled every week. <laughs> I mean, that's basically what he said the two times I asked him before. So I figured it's like ditto. It just keeps it keeps rolling. Sure, sure. So for those who don't know Horrified, the game we're covering today, this is one of the recent slew of generally good to great Ravensburger hobby level games that have been uh, coming out through Target. Yeah, and the theme of the game is it's if you know the Monster Squad movie... It is on Amazon Prime, so I'm sure most people out there have a Amazon Prime subscription, and it's available on there. So I'm actually going to start watching it tonight. It basically takes the Universal Monsters, Dracula, Frankenstein, Mummy, Wolfman, and the Creature from the Black Lagoon, and puts them into one movie, and this is one game based on all those things. This one also adds in The Bride of Frankenstein and The Invisible Man as well. That is the basic theme. Basically, all of these creatures are coming in and focusing their attention on this one town. So they've got to deal with all of them at once. And so, Mike, why don't you get a little bit in the mechanics? So as Peter mentioned, you're going to be facing off against some of these monsters. You can pick whether you face two, three, or four. That's the main difficulty level in the game. And it's very much a sort of pandemic-style game. You have a player turn, and then a monster turn, and then the next player's turn, then a monster turn. You go back and forth. For the players to win, they have to destroy all the monsters, and that will be somewhat unique based on each monster. You'll need items of different colors. There are these items that spawn on the board during each monster turn, and you can spend one of your actions to pick them up. But in sort of pandemic style, you'll move around the board uh, with three to five actions, depending on your character. Each character has their own special ability. And actions are primarily moving, picking up these items, and then using them to do effects that will eventually defeat the monsters. 
Then on the monster's turn, you draw a monster card. It'll spawn more items. It'll have some kind of event happen, sometimes positive, sometimes hurtful. And then finally, it'll identify which monsters move. Now, it'll sometimes say monsters that aren't in the game. Events will also sometimes apply to monsters that aren't in the game, because again, you only use two to four of them. But that's the general gist of the game. Move around, get items, and do stuff. Monsters move around and potentially attack you if they get to you or these little ally characters that can crop up. Then uh, they can attack you, and that's the main loss condition for the game. If too many of the heroes get hurt or too many of these townsfolk get killed, then you lose. And again, in sort of a pandemic-style mechanic, if you go through the entire monster deck, you're drawing one card after each player's turn, then you also lose. Cool. Yeah, as you guys can hear, it's a pretty straightforward game, and that's one thing that's great about what these Rothensburger games are doing, is they're coming up with family-friendly games. But I guess before I get into my final thoughts on the review, let's go <laughs> ahead and do the review. So, if you haven't joined us before, welcome. Thank you for joining us. We do a top five list here, where we start with the number five thing that we think about the game, which is the least important thing, and we work our way to our number one, which we feel is the most important thing for you guys to know about the game. So, I will start us off today with my number five. And my number five is that there are unique characters in the game, but this is kind of a mix. And the reason I say it's kind of a mix is because they're special abilities are kind of boring. Now, they do all play a little bit differently, but they're mostly movement-based. Like, some characters will move somebody else one space, or one of the characters can move to any space on the board. Another one can move to any space that has a monster. Another one can just grab items from a space away. So they're not that unique or different from each other. So, yes, they are kind of thematic. I mean, even in this limited set of powers that they had, they did make it kind of thematic, but they're not really that much different from each other, which is good and bad. So that's why it's a mix, and that's also why it's pretty low on my list. It's not either a pro or a con. It's just something to know. Yeah, I'll be talking about that in just a moment. But before we get there, my number five, which is a full-on con... But a minor one, because it's my number five, is that the game has not only a lack of escalation in some cases, but even potentially reverse escalation. So for those who don't know what I'm talking about, one of the big things we look for in co-op games, since you're playing against VAI, is for the game to get tougher and tougher and for the tension to build and build so that uh, things are exciting when you win or lose. And this game will often have that, but... There's no real mechanic besides the card deck running out that will necessarily always make you feel tense as the game ends, compared to something like Forbidden Island, where the island will always sink pretty much consistently, no matter how well you play. And then on top of that, because the monsters are the primary difficulty setting in the game, if you get all your ducks in a row to defeat a monster quickly, uh, in, for example, three or four monster play, the game will feel markedly easier, and that's something you want to kind of strive for. Now, the reason this is my number five, and I do suspect Peter might have it higher, is that I have not had many games where this has been a problem. It tends to crop up pretty infrequently. And even when I have killed a monster early in three and four monster games, it still hasn't felt like a cakewalk. It's certainly been easier, and in four monster games, it's kind of required, or you're just going to get crushed. But it, it did make the game feel unsatisfying. So I do wish there was a bit more escalation. I personally feel like, uh, even in Pandemic, which again, this game is similar to in a lot of ways, I've always hated that the player deck running out makes you lose the game. I understand why it's there for balance, but it always feels like by far the least interesting 
ending of a game. And same thing here. Like, I, I think the fact that the only thing that's really escalating sometimes is the deck, like when you aren't losing those townsfolk too quickly, that's not that satisfying for me. But still, my number five, not a big deal. Yeah, believe it or not, this one didn't make my list, and mostly because I forgot about it, to be honest. It's funny, because after my first play of this, I really thought this was going to be a problem, because my first play was with two monsters. And let me tell you, two monsters is a total cakewalk. It is not hard at all. And so I was thinking, oh my gosh, with three monsters, I would just kill one really quickly, and it would feel like this total cakewalk. And I haven't really experienced that, as you were saying. As you get to the higher difficulty levels, there's a couple things. Not only the fear of the deck running out, but also... Like, villagers will pop up, as Mike was saying, throughout the game. And a lot of times, there'll be a monster right there, and they'll kill them the very first turn they come in. And so, this other track is escalating pretty quickly, too. So, one of those two conditions is constantly pushing its way up. And unlike some other games, there's no way to push it back down, which, in my opinion, is a very good thing. Oh, absolutely. I definitely get this increasing sense of dread and tension as the game goes on, because I'm like, oh, man, I can't have a villager pop up right now. Yeah, so that's why it didn't make my list. Because between the villagers and the deck, I, I did feel like the tension increased as the game went on just because I felt a time pressure. Yeah, and, and I'll agree that it often does. I'll get into why it sometimes does it in another way later. Sure. All right, well, my number four is that this uses action point activation. So, like Mike said, very similar to Pandemic, where most of your characters are going to have four actions. Here, they have a minimum of three, which is only one character that has three, and that's the one that can literally move to any spot on the board for one action, which is just amazing. And then they have one character that has five actions, and they have no special ability, so they just have an extra action to do stuff on their board. So, I do like these action point systems, and I think they lead to simpler mechanics, so you're not having... You know, you do have different phases, things like that. But I think it's very simple. Like for one action point, you move one space. Very similar to Pandemic. But, you know, Forbidden Island has that same mechanism as well. For one action point, you can pick up everything on your spot. So they're very simple actions. And it's very easy even for children or novice gamers to really understand what they're doing because of these action points. Actually, Flashpoint uses action points as well. I guess a lot of games do, but... I really do think that that system makes it easier for new gamers and makes any game that has them, I feel like, is more toward gateway. Yeah, it's interesting. I I thought of this as such a basic thing that it didn't even make my list, but clearly it is one of the key mechanics in the game, so I could have mentioned it. So yeah, I agree with you. So my number four is almost identical to your number five. It's the character abilities, and it's also a mix for me. I agree with everything you said. The only thing I'll add is I get frustrated when powers are unbalanced, and as you just mentioned, the uh, <laughs> the explorer who can move across the entire board, even though she has one fewer action, does not feel balanced to me. Oh, no, definitely not. She's way better. <laughs> yeah, and they also have my least favorite character in any game. I hate these characters. I wish they would stop making them. Is the I give up my entire turn to do stuff with other people characters? Yes. Pandemic has it. Uh, this game has it. And it's like, just st- stop putting these people in. I, I, don't, I don't understand. <laughs> if some gamers like that kind of character, I don't know. That's fine. But I always find them to be a terrible design choice. So yeah, I don't. I I think the characters are fine. I like that they have different abilities. I think in such a light game, it's okay that they are kind of light and simple. But as you said, they're fairly boring and they aren't that balanced. And although somebody might say, "Oh, you can make the game easier or harder by using easier or harder characters," I find that very limiting. I don't like that explanation. So there you go. That's my number four. 
Well, and as I've always said with this, I don't mind if they have characters that make the game easier or harder, but there's no way of telling you that either. They don't say, hey, the Explorer is just way better than everybody else. Now, the only one thing I will say, they're not good at villager actions. Like, they can't take the villagers with them, so... Sure. Um, that is the one area they're a little bit weaker, but I don't find saving the villagers to be a viable strategy anyway, so... Yes. Uh, <laughs> So I, I don't know that that's that much of a hindrance. You know, sometimes they can push them off in the corner and they have to do that. Sure. All right. So my number three is the enemy activation. And the way the monsters activate is you draw these monster cards from a monster deck. The first thing you do, as Mike said, is you lay items out on the board. I think this is very clever because it's not the same number of items every turn. So I almost get a castle panic feel with this. You draw on a certain number of things from the bag and you put them on the board. Although it's way easier here, they have their locations listed. Although I guess this is a little bit of a negative to this point is, my gosh, trying to find those locations on the board. And my memory must not be that good because I can't ever remember where that darn inn is or the graveyard. Oh, my, it's like trying to locate these locations now and some of them have like similar names like i think it's like a a laboratory and the library or something (laughs) some similar ones and i'm like ah yeah so i mean yes while in castle panic you have to roll a dice to figure out where to place them here you just place them wherever but i do like the fact that some of the cards can be a little bit easier and not as punishing to players and they put out zero tokens and some of them can be super punishing but they put a lot of these tokens on the board And unlike Castle Panic, these tokens actually help you. These are items you need to collect to help you complete the tasks for the monsters or defeat the monster. Or also, whenever you get attacked, you can just discard an item to shrug off that damage. So items are very useful, and this is how they seat them on the board. So that's the first part of the enemy activation. The next thing you do is an enemy power, and it's going to relate to one of the monsters in the game. You're not going to have all of them in the game, so there are... A lot of times you're drawing these cards in that part you don't activate at all. And then the last thing you do is activate the monsters. I just like how that system works. Even the activation of the monsters is super simple because not only does it say what monsters activate on the bottom, but it also tells you how many spaces they move and how many dice they attack for. And you literally just move them that many spaces to toward the closest either villager or hero and you roll a number of dice equal to the number of dice they tell you. And the way they escalate this a little bit is there is one of the monsters that is like the priority monster and it has a little flame token on it and that monster activates whenever the flame token comes up. So let's say Dracula has it, Dracula is on the card and the flame token, Dracula is going to activate twice then. I just like how they did this. It's very clever how they seed the board, make enemies feel unique with these powers, and then it's so quick to activate the enemies as well. Yeah, so this is a simple game. (laughs) You know, it's a pretty straightforward design, which means we are going to have some doubling, because my number three is almost identical to your number three, and that is the the monster cards and kind of what they lead to. Um, The only things I'll kind of call out, because this was more of a mix for me, still leaning pro, but not as fully positive as you. Number one, I know that I want this game to be heavier, (laughs) so this isn't really fair, because they're going for a simple design. But I do sort of wish that... Maybe you had built the deck before the game so that only cards that related to the monsters were in there so that both you would get kind of more varied results from game to game, but also so that you wouldn't just have these turns where the event did literally nothing, which happens fairly frequently. Again, it's going to make it more accessible. It means that setup is faster, but I wouldn't have minded them going a little bit deeper with the design there. And then the other thing is, as you mentioned, I don't find it that satisfying that you can spawn a villager and they can immediately get killed, especially if that loses you the game. 
which uh, the, the last time I played with my son before I let Peter borrow my copy, uh, I think we had that happen three or four times in that game, and we lost solely because of that. And there's literally nothing you can do. You have no idea where the villagers are going to pop up, and you can't protect them. They just get eaten by a monster. And I guess that's fine. That does build the tension, maybe. But I didn't find it a satisfying tension build to kind of connect back to my number five. So I still really like it. I think the the cleverness of seeding the items, like you said, all that stuff works really smoothly. I just, in my gamer brain, wish they'd gone a little bit less random and a little bit more differentiated if I look at it. Sure, and I will say I don't mind getting a monster card that doesn't activate. And the reason is, kind of like Pandemic does too, sometimes you get cards, even though they always add a cube in Pandemic, that don't really mean a whole lot. And sometimes it means more. And I think, I mean, maybe one of our design blockades that you and I have is we always want something interesting happening. But I don't think there is a problem having ebbs and flows in the game. And so getting these cards, it's almost like a woohoo moment. So I don't mind that as much. Yeah, but I mean, the the design already has that because there are positive event cards. You know what I mean? Like there's the Black Lagoon one that makes him run away to a lake right when he's about to kill you. I think they already have a lot of that in the design. So I think you get the ebb and flow with interesting effects instead of just non-existent effects. Sure, sure. And I guess they could have done that as well. They could have made it more interesting. But yes, I mean, just to make it clear, this is clearly a design meant for family and very accessible game for new gamers. Absolutely. I freely admit that I'm, (laughs) with that point, looking for the game to be a little bit heavier. And that's not what it was going for at all. Yeah. All right. So my number two is the damage system. I really like how this works. Basically, you roll a certain number of dice and again... The monster card on the bottom tells you how many dice to roll, and it is not specific to a certain monster. It says, all right, this turn, you know, move Frankenstein, move Dracula, and move the Wolfman, and they move one space and they roll three dice. So it's really simple how the enemies activate and move, but the way the damage works is you roll these three dice and they either have hits on them, they have exclamation points, or they have misses. The misses are obviously misses. For every point of damage a hit does, you have to either discard an item token or you just knock yourself out, which moves the terror track up one space and gets you closer to losing that way. But if you get knocked out, the nice part about that is you can keep all your items. So as we'll talk about, I'm sure, in one of these points coming up, you know, every monster has their own way of being defeated, but they all require some of these items. So if you only have items you need, you are not required to discard them when you get damaged. You can just get yourself knocked out, move the terror track up. And so I just like how easy it is to resolve damage in this game. And it also gives the monsters a little bit more uniqueness because when the exclamation point is rolled, every monster has their own unique ability that gets triggered by that as well. So it's just nice and easy to resolve. And it goes with the rest of the game as far as complexity level goes. Yeah, my number two is uh, unfortunately almost identical. <laughs> we haven't had one of these reviews. And the funny thing is, Peter and I have never played this game together. It's just, again, the the design is pretty straightforward. Yeah, I, I like the items. I think uh, the choice when you get hit... So actually, I, I will say I'm focusing more on the items. I think you were focusing more on the uh, combat dice. So I do... I, I love like the collection of items. I love how they gain more or less value based on where the monsters are and what's going on. I like how they change the board state by making some areas more or less valuable when you get like a big congregation of items all joined together because you collect all the items out of space for a single action. So it's not like it's taking you longer to get four things. And then, yeah, as you already said, with your combat thing, I guess this is a different point. 
I like that you have a choice when you get hit. You know, do I want to discard two or three items I might need to win the game to not go to the hospital and bring us closer to losing? Or do I want to just take that hit and keep these items to potentially, uh, you know, do something with? So I like all of that. I will say on your point about the combat system, I do hate going to the hospital <laughs> when I'm not playing as the Explorer, and it could take me, like, several turns to get back to where I was. Sure. But apart from that, I really like how the items work, and I agree with you that the combat system is good, too. Well, sometimes there's a lot of items on the hospital or near the hospital, so, you know, it's not always a bad place to be. Sure. Good point. Actually, do items pop up on the hospital? Now that I, I don't think, think they it. do. I was, I was not going to say that, but I can't remember ever seeing an item on the hospital. Maybe yeah, no, but there can certainly be, you know, in the lo- the one location attached to it, there certainly can be uh, items there. Sure. All right, Mike, I'm going to let you do number one first, because I feel like we're going to overlap on this one as well. Well, we might feel differently about it, though. So, I'll, yeah, that's fine. Though. I'll go first. Uh, so I think the thing that the game is selling itself most on is the variety of the bosses. And the idea that you can mix and match them and get a different experience. The way I'm going to talk about this, because this is a mix for me, is I think a lot of this is expectations. So this might not be entirely fair to the game. I apologize if it comes off that way. But the way I heard about this game from, uh, I think Brady Sadler was bragging about it on Facebook. And then some other people on the Slack were talking about it. And uh, Colin talked about it. And all the things I heard at first were like, they are so different. The monsters changed the game completely. And maybe that's not how the game is marketed. I don't really know. But in any case, they don't. Uh, in my feeling, I think the monsters are almost the same. It's all kind of semantics. With maybe, like, one exception, I think the mummy feels kind of different. But different in a negative way, because he's the only one my son can't play with, my seven-year-old, because he doesn't really understand the spatial puzzle of moving these little tokens around. But all the rest, like, yes, they have an exclamation point, but the exclamation result almost never comes up because you're rolling usually one or two dice for the monster and it's only on one of the six sides. Uh, As I said, the event cards, they're all, like, movement-based. It's kind of like the character powers. It's like, ooh, Dracula moves you toward him, but the wolfman chases after you. And it's like, ah, it's all the same thing. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I don't really find them that different. It's still fun. For an accessible game like this, it is a minor change. But, like, when I first played with my son and we played with a couple monsters, he was like, oh, we got to try these ones next. And I was like, yeah, let's do it. And then I played again, and I was like, oh, it's the exact same game. And then I played again, and I was like, it's definitely the exact same game. So I'm still happy they did it. I think they accomplished it in a, uh, you know, a nice, accessible way. But, you know, if somebody was like, ooh, there's an expansion pack for Horrified coming out, three new monsters, which maybe they'll do, I, I might have zero interest in that because I would not trust that it would actually make the game feel different. So I still think it's okay. Mick's kind of le- leaning toward Khan, but mainly because of expectations, I think. But yeah, how about you, Peter? I assume this is yours. How did you feel about it? Yeah, mine is the monster advance and defeat mechanism. So first you have to do one thing to the monster, and then you have to do something different to defeat them. So for example, on the Frankenstein track, for Frankenstein and the Bride, they're trying to get together, and every time they do, they'll hurt you, but you are trying to raise their humanity, so you go on their spaces and you do some things to give them humanity. Once you get them both to their maximum humanity, then you are trying to get them together, and that's their defeat condition. So that's one example. The mummy, you know, you're moving these numbers around. As Mike said, once you get them around, I think you got to go on his space and, you know, defeat him by discarding items worth a certain value. And you're right. That is the way a lot of them work, but they do still feel different enough to me. 
and they all have a little bit unique puzzles. Like, I was actually surprised, and maybe because I wasn't sold the game this way, uh, I was surprised at how different they felt to me. Like, the Invisible Man, you have to go give in items from certain locations. He's the only one that actually cares about the location on the items. Usually, they care about the color and the number on the item. And so, I did think that they felt fairly different, but you're right. I mean, there isn't enough variety there that 100 games in, I'm still going to feel like there's something new. I played with them all multiple times now, and when you get the same one again, it does feel very similar. And to be honest, it's like, all right, what do I need to collect? That seems to be the puzzle to me. What do I need to collect? What colors are on the board? And which one can I get to fastest? And which one is you know closest to being defeated? Let me work on that one, and then let's go on to the next one. Yeah, I mean, yes. Everything you say is true. I, it just To me, it didn't feel that different. And, you know, it was like, hey, blue is a bit more valuable this game. Yellow is a bit more valuable this new game. Because in the end, <laughs> you're going somewhere, you're discarding an item for an action. Something happens. You do that a few more times, you get some more items, you go kill them. Like, that's basically how they all work. I, I agree that, I guess, the Invisible Man and the Mummy are a little different. Frankenstein, kind of, I guess. You got to go to him and discard an item on him. Like, it's it's like, it, it just, it, it again feels like semantics. It's like, hey, I go to this location instead of that location and spend an action to move a thing. Bam. <laughs> yes. Know? The only thing that would excite me about an expansion with more creatures is I feel like they're out of basic ideas. I feel like they would have to go a little bit heavier with their next couple of heroes and monsters because all the basic stuff is out of the way now yeah although that might mean they have to add mechanics and then it'll be harder to play with my family so we'd have to see how that would go yeah so mike i mean you've started getting into your final thoughts i feel like why don't you go ahead and finish it off yeah so even though it might have sounded like i kind of started and ended fairly negatively i think this is a great great gateway game I have really enjoyed my plays of it with my son. I think uh, it's it's really simple to teach, quick to play. The bits are great. Like, they have individual uh, monster miniatures in different colors. It's not like the sculpts or anything to write home about, but it's just fun that you have those. And then each of the monsters has, like, their own thick, chunky cardboard pieces that, like, change up how locations work on the board. The items are nice. It's not too stressful, it's just a really good game. It's it's a great gateway game. I strongly recommend it for anyone who's going to be playing with a casual friend or partner frequently or uh, especially playing with kids. I think this one is a home run. That being said, as you might have noticed from my points, uh, if you're looking for anything heavier, if you're looking for things that are kind of more interesting in the gameplay or will give you a more varied experience game to game, I would not say this is one that you really need to seek out. And I would say for solo play, it's not really worth it either. Like, I I would not recommend this to a heavier gamer. If you do not have kids to play with or do not have casual friends to play with, I think there is no reason to own this, just my own personal opinion. Yeah, I mirror a lot of what you say. I do think it is fine for a light filler type game. You know, if played with gamers, this game couldn't take more than a half an hour. Once you know the rules, and that's the other thing. I feel like it's the kind of game where you could put it away, pull it out once a month, once every quarter, once every year, and probably still not forget the rules to it. So it's nice, light, straightforward. For me, it replaces something like Castle Panic. I mean, I'd kind of been done with Castle Panic as it was anyway. So I feel like it's in that same weight as Castle Panic, and I would rather play this over Castle Panic. 
Yeah, I would say this is probably up there with Forbidden Island for games I would recommend to people trying to get, like, a kid into gaming. A slightly older kid, of course. We'll get into that in our conversation in a moment. But yes, this is four four family weight games. This is very high on my list. Although that list is fairly short, so it's not saying a huge amount of thing. But this would probably be, like, in my top three now for games I would recommend to uh, parents of younger kids. Yeah, and the price is right, too. I mean, for 35 bucks for what you're getting in this game, as you said, the miniatures, the art isn't gruesome in it, so you don't have to worry about that with kids. You know, I actually think the art's pretty good, and it's got thick cardboard for the other pieces. The card stock's a little thin, but whatever. I mean, I feel like they'll last, and if you're worried about it, you could sleep them if you really want to. But no, the quality's pretty good for the price. Yeah, so definite big recommend for families maybe minor to no recommend for uh, heavier gamers. Uh, Fill a recommend from Peter. Yeah, yeah, no, that's about right. All right, so let's talk about gaming with our kids. Yeah, so Peter has more experience with this than I do. And if you've listened to our episode zero, I think we might have talked about this a little bit there. But uh, my son just turned seven. I have another son who is going to turn four soon, but he has not really been uh, indoctrinated slash welcomed into the gaming world yet. I need to start... uh, Actually, the process I'm about to describe is something I need to get going on with him. But yeah, so my son is seven, and at this point, we he does like video games some. Like, he's playing uh, some Switch games, and he likes uh, Netflix a lot, of course, and then playing uh, outside and stuff. But uh, he does play board games with me. I'd say probably once or twice a week is about the most I can get. How about you, Peter? What's kind of your situation? Yeah, it, it really ebbs and flows, and I'm sure... it's the same with all of us, right? Depending on how busy our schedules get and how busy other things are. But yeah, I mean, if I could get him to play games with me a couple days a week, I'm perfectly happy with that. And I mean, you should be. Like, they aren't your game group. And and maybe they're the only people you get to game with, but that's okay too. When you have kids, your schedule changes and gaming isn't the most important thing. And that's the thing you always have to keep in mind with gaming with kids is this isn't necessarily about you. If you do it right, I feel like they could become good gaming partners, and certainly Nick is becoming that in my life. So my kids, Allison is 8 and Nicholas is 11. Nick and I are starting to play a lot of games together. Allison I'm still, you know, in process with. But uh, I have my own process too, so I'm kind of curious. What is your process for getting your kids started? So some of them are games that I borrowed from you, like the Haba games, H-A-B-A are a pretty great line of really simple things. This is for little kids. Like, I think I started playing those with Harrison around four years old. So, again, about where Colin, my youngest, is. So, uh, an example, what's what's the racing game you have, Peter, that I borrowed? Monza. That was uh, one that really early on was, like, fun for him to play. I'll also shout out, uh, for almost any age, Gulo Gulo. Or, unfortunately, the version that you can get now is the far inferior but still good Pharaoh's Gulu Gulu. Peter has the good one, and I have the uh, not-so-good one. Uh, that's <laughs> a great game for kids uh, of, of kind of any age going on up because uh, it's better if you have smaller fingers. So they actually tend to be honestly better at it than adults instead of uh, with a lot of games kind of cheating their way to be better. Another one I wanted to recommend is a co-op for kids in that hobble line. It's called Orchard. And it is super straightforward. You're just rolling a dice, and if you roll red, you pull the red thing off the board, which happens to be cherries. And you're trying to clear the board of items before you roll 
the Raven symbol nine times. And I mean, there are no, I mean, there's one decision in the game, really. Like you roll a basket and you can pick which fruits to pick up. But beside that, you're just rolling dice and picking things up. But kids like it because they can play it just as well as you can. Now, for adults, it gets boring pretty quickly, but it introduces them to co-op, it introduces them to turns, and it has cool wooden bits, and the kids really loved that one, and still request it from time to time. Yeah, that's one I didn't play, but (laughs) by the way, this is not the same Orchard that Steve covered on the YouTube channel. That is clearly a different game, but yeah, Hava is great in general. Now, something I'll say, and this might not be a popular opinion... But I do not believe you need to play the sort of requisite terrible games with your kids. So as an example, Candyland. I think Candyland is kind of a horrific game design in a lot of ways. First of all, if you do play Candyland, play, I think it's Peter's variants that I play with, which is basically no backward movement. Or if you do have backward movement, it only applies to the adults and not to the kids. Yeah, I actually posted, you know, I have three rules that I changed in the game, and I did post it to BGG. So if you look under Candyland on Board Game Geek, look under Variants. Mine's up there. My username's Monkey Goose, so you can find it on BGG, and uh, it definitely speeds up the game. I mean, I've never had a game of Candyland take more than 10 minutes. But yeah, what I was going to suggest instead of Candyland and those kind of things is feel free to bring out games, especially cooperative games, that are more exciting, that have cooler bits, And feel free to either limit what your kid needs to do or completely do nothing with the rules and just let them like play with the bits to kind of get into the mindset of it. So I was, for example, playing Forbidden Island with Harrison very early on. Super simple game. You just have actions. If I'd had Horrified, I probably would have done that. Like by the time he was five, I was playing those games with him. And, you know, it doesn't matter if you fudge some rules, if you skip some phases, if you let him take two turns in a row. That's probably my first piece of advice, I guess, if you really want to get down to, like, advice for people. Don't worry about fidelity to the rules. Don't worry about teaching them to be a good sport. Those are valuable skills, but you have lots of time to teach those. I would try to play almost exclusively cooperative games, and I would worry little to none about the rules. Just let them have fun. I'll also say, like, any kind of choose-your-own-adventure-ish thing, as long as the text isn't too long to lose their attention, where they just get to, like, make a choice and then cool stuff happens, especially if there's bits that go with it, those are great for little kids, at least in my opinion and my experience. Yeah, so the method I use is a little bit different. I agree with you on a lot of things. Number one is I always have games around. Right. So you walk into my basement and it is a cave of games. So the kids are always around them. They don't think anything about the games being around. And I'm not very protective of them either. Like, I'll just let them open the box and start playing with the bits. We are good about making sure to put one game away before pulling out another one, because I certainly don't want bits mixed up between boxes. But I have no problem if they just want to pull out a game and they ask the first question, even to this day at 8 and 11 is, does this game have miniatures? Literally every game that comes in the house. Does this game have miniatures? Well, I, f- I feel like 18 to 65 year olds are also asking this question <laughs> on Kickstarter. Sure. But I mean, that is the number one thing that interests them. So if it has miniatures, then they want to at least see the miniatures. They want to play with it as a toy first. And so, you know, I let them dig in there and and get their hands on it and play with it as a toy, as Mike was saying earlier. You know, you don't always have to play with it as a game. I want them to feel comfortable around games and want to play with the pieces. So for me, I don't mind. Now, the one part I do 
vary from you on is, look, if my kids want to play Monopoly, we're going to play Monopoly. We've played Catan. We've played Candyland more times than I can count. We've played the princess making cupcake games a million times. I feel like you have to let them play their games too, because if they are interested in it, or if their friends are interested in it, or if their friends gave it to them, they are going to be more interested in that game And you just have to find a way to make it a fun experience to do with them. So I have played a lot of those terrible games, but we've also played a lot of great games as well. So that is the one place I I guess we vary a little. Well, and I'll say I've played probably 50 games of Candyland with Harrison too. What I'm saying is I don't think if your kid's never requesting it, don't feel like it's an obligation to play it with them. Yeah, if they want to play, anytime they want to play anything, even if you don't love it, <laughs> try to suck it up and like just do that experience with them. You know what I mean? But yeah, I'm just saying like I don't think it's it's a rite of passage that you have to survive a dozen games of Candyland if you can avoid it. Sure. And the other thing I've done is taken my kids to the game store and let them look around and pick things that look interesting to them. Like Allison got one of my favorite games is actually Yahtzee. She got a My Little Pony Yahtzee set. And okay, it's got My Little Pony theme on it. Who cares? I get to play Yahtzee every once in a while. So anything that gets them interested, anything that goes, ooh, I want to play that, that's how you build their interest in it. And even if you don't get lucky like I did and they pick a game that you want to play, you're still getting to play games with your kids. And that's the most important thing. Hopefully you have time for other game nights as well, and that way you can get your heavy gaming in, and you're not trying to like force that on your kids. Because I think nothing will push them away faster is trying to get them to play a game that the turns are too long or the game's too heavy, they get lost, they get bored. I think that pushes them away from gaming. You want them to have positive gaming experiences. Yeah, to that end, don't be afraid to set a limit. Like, hey, we're only going to play for 10 minutes, and then we'll pause and we'll pick it up later. Or if you see them starting to get antsy, just kind of skip past some things or condense the game in a quick way. And you actually brought up something that I forgot, Peter, that was pretty instrumental in Harrison really starting to become active in the games we were playing. And that was, like you said, going to a local game store and not even letting him pick out his own games, although that also eventually happened. But the biggest thing for him was... He was, as you said, so surrounded by games that they seemed normal, and he wasn't even that interested in them a lot of the time. But when I went to a game store, and lucky for me, the game store near us had a library of games you could play it with, including a library of kids' games. The fact that we were, like, at a special place, it was only there for games, and he could, like, look through this huge selection, he could pick whatever he wanted to play, it made it feel more special to him than just playing in the basement, And I think that definitely played a big part because we created a ritual or not a ritual, a routine of it that uh, lasted for several months until that game store closed. We would go once a week, every week, go to the game store. There was an ice cream place right next to it. That didn't hurt. We would get some ice cream after we had played some games. You know, I'm not above bribery and, you know, positive associations. (laughs) Absolutely. Hey, when games happen, I get ice cream. You know, that's, that's that's a psychological thing you can use to your advantage. Um, but yeah, like it would be an awesome time. We would play, and he would just see a game that looked cool. We'd try it out. If the rules didn't make any sense to me, I'd just make them up. And uh, he would be picking games. He'd be actively playing games, and he'd get a little treat afterwards to make it all kind of wrap together in a nice bow. 
Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't think about that. But yeah, I did the same thing with Nicholas. We used to go to Maryland basketball games. We had season tickets one year, and then we went to some women's games as well. And uh, he used to love going to the basketball games because, again, he would get an icy when we went there. But we would stop by. There was a local game cafe by the University of Maryland. We'd stop by there first, get some gaming in. You know, that would be our pregame tailgating would be uh, gaming at the uh, game store and then go watch some basketball. And you're right, that positive association. Make it a fun evening, not just, a you know, necessarily a fun game night. And another thing you said, which is really smart, and I do this too, is when you see that they are done – don't push through. Oh, absolutely. Don't be like, oh, we only have three turns left, buddy. Come on, you can do this. No, if they are done, if they are mentally checked out, stop the game right then and there. And again, if you have space to keep it set up, that's typically what I try to do. But if not, it's okay to pack it up as well. It's like, you know what? Did you have fun? Absolutely. All right, go do whatever, you know, you're going to let them do next. Let's go play some toys, something else, something you want to do. I can see you're you're no longer into this at this point. Let's let's pack it up. Yeah, and I, I definitely had frustrating experiences with that exact thing. Uh, the big one that stuck out at me is Harrison decided that Eldritch Horror was his favorite game for whatever reason. <laughs> <laughs> so he would ask for it all the time, but Eldritch Horror takes like 20 minutes to set up <laughs> or more. So I would get the whole game set up, and then he'd have moved on, and his interest would have waned, and I could get really frustrated, or I could leave it set up, and then when he got interested again, like later that day, then it would be ready to go. We could play right away. So that's what I would try to do. A few times I'd, I was like, we're not playing Eldritch Horror anymore, and maybe that's why I uh, got rid of it, and now he's angry at me about that. <laughs> but <laughs> he's still, uh, yeah, it's like every game I get rid of, he decides is his favorite game. What was the one uh, recently? Oh, uh, Roll for Adventure. I, uh, this, I guess this is a spoiler for some upcoming episode of Shelf Life, but I sent a roll for adventure to Jason Perez from Every Night is Game Night. And uh, <laughs> Harrison's like, where's where's the game with the wizard? And I'm like, I don't even know what game you're talking about, man. We played that once, and you said you didn't like it. And he's like, I thought that game was the best. And he got all teary-eyed. So I guess that's another piece of advice. If you're a caller like I am, be really careful <laughs> what games you well, call. Well, I will tell you, Mike, I still own that game because I love it. So you can borrow my copy and we can make a little boy happy. Oh, that, that that's my saving grace with Eldritch Horror 2. I'm like, hey, Peter has that. We can borrow it anytime. And I've never actually borrowed it again. But, you know, just the, the little olive branch that it exists and it could become his again is uh, enough for him usually. Yeah, that's good. So one thing, and we both talked about how we have two children. And I will say the one piece of advice that I've just learned recently and I failed through this so many times that I will never, ever play a game with them both for the first time, like with both of them together. I will play it with one child, then I will play it with the other child, and then if they both still like it, then we can play it with all three of us. Because the problem is that turns take longer the first time you're playing a game, and as the child's learning the game, it's going to take them longer. So the other child's going to get bored and they're going to check out. Plus, as we said earlier, when they're ready to stop, you should be ready to stop yourself and be able to stop. And if you have two kids and one wants to keep playing and the other one doesn't, that leads to problems as well. So I will almost never, ever introduce a game to both children at the same time. I will play it with one first, then with the other one, and then we can play it together. Yeah, and you were telling me this uh, recently, and I think it's an amazing idea. 
But also you mentioned that sometimes the other child will just watch the game and they don't have to be involved in it. It might make them interested for an, their own play later. But yeah, they can just kind of like hang out. They can go play some more, then come back and check out how the game's going. So it's not like they have to be a totally inactive participant. But yeah, I think that's really good advice. Colin is not at the age yet where he's trying to actually play the game right now. It's more just damage control so he doesn't grab all the miniatures off the board while we're playing. He's kind of like a cat in that way. But uh, yeah, I I will have to take that advice myself uh, fairly soon, I think. Yeah, and you know, it's funny you mentioned that. I was playing Spirit Island, believe it or not, with my eight-year-old tonight. Yes, I said start with easier games, but she's been gaming for a while. And just the theme caught her. And again, whatever it takes, right? For them, she liked the cool miniatures in it. So we were playing Spirit Island tonight, and Nicholas kept coming over and checking it out. And he was really interested too, even though when I brought it up to him, he wasn't interested in playing at all. So by me playing with her, it raised his interest in playing the game as well. And the other part about that is one-on-one time with your children is so precious and special and we don't get it very often. And if they're doing something that you love in gaming, again, even if it's not your favorite game, Getting that one-on-one time really creates special moments as well. And so that's why I also think it's important to play one-on-one with them before, you know, introducing them and trying to play it as a group. Absolutely. So something sort of related, and this is very new. I don't know if I've even told you this yet, Peter. Maybe I mentioned it. RPGing with your kids, as opposed to board gaming, has been amazing the last few weeks for me. So, context. This might not work for a lot of people. I was a professional actor. I did uh, improv theater for years. I've also been a game master for different RPGs for decades. So, I'm very comfortable just doing stuff on the fly. And I've also been a storyteller. But what I've been doing lately is diceless D&D adventures in the car with my kids as I drive them places. So, like, our new entertainment, if we have, like, a 30-minute drive somewhere, is we'll just have, like, a little adventure. Like, hey, we're going into a cave, and there's some goblins there. What do you do? And it's entirely, you know, like, I'll just have them pass or fail, depending on what seems fun. And, of course, they'll always win in this version, but they'll take some damage in the process. And I'll have, like, little traps for them. Traps are really fun, and they'll have to escape in the nick of time. And they both like uh, Indiana Jones, even though maybe it's <laughs> maybe they're too young for it, but they certainly enjoy it. So I can, like, pull in all the kind of Indiana Jones sort of archaeological stuff in there. But, yeah, so uh, it totally surprised me. I would never even thought to try it, except that... It actually, Peter, it came about because of you. Because Peter recently was like, hey, I want Nick to try his first game of Dungeons & Dragons. And Jerry, our friend that has been on the podcast, uh, was going to Game Master for us, and he was setting everything up. And I mentioned this to Harrison the night that we were going to play and then ended up not playing that first night. And he was like, Dungeons & Dragons, what's that? And I was just like, hey, you want to try it? And he was like, yeah. So we started playing. uh, (laughs) Just to go briefly into story time, Harrison wanted to be a rogue because he had uh, seen like a rogue character in one of my games and thought that was cool. And then Colin was in the car. I didn't think Colin would even, like, speak up. And Colin was like, I want to adventure, too. And I was like, oh, okay, what character do you want to be? And Colin said, I want to be a smelly guy. And I was like, all right, that's a new character class. Here we go. You're a smelly guy. So (laughs) the game was great, man. Uh, Harrison and Colin were, like, working together, helping each other out. Colin made his smelliness work. He would, like, do smell attacks and, like, knock out the goblins with his stench. And, uh, yeah, it was just an awesome time. So we've done that uh, maybe four times since then in the last, like, three weeks or so. And it's it's been a blast. So 
sort of a non sequitur, but I think it's all kind of related. Uh, feel free to game in whatever way you feel comfortable with your kids, and even in ways that might seem kind of out of the ordinary or unorthodox. And it can be a great time to kind of bond with them. I mean, Nicholas has been talking about nothing but D&D since we played that one night. Oh, my gosh. We're definitely going to have to play again with him. You know, and I think integrating him into our gaming circle with something like a role-playing game is a lot easier because it's it's hard for him to mess up the night doing that. Yeah, he was being a little goofy, whatever else. But it's not like a game where, you know, you've got all these rigid rules that you've got to follow and all these structures. Jerry did a great job of kind of ignoring his goofiness when appropriate. Where, you know, as with a board game where there's structured turns and rounds and things, I think it's a little bit harder. And, you know, kids are following rules all the time, all day. I think the nice part about RPGs is the rules are a little bit looser and you can kind of do what you want with it. So I do think RPGs are a good way to go. And that reminds me of another thing that my family loves to do, which is Rory Story Cubes. Anything that gets their imagination flowing. So if you don't know Rory's Story Cubes, it's basically dice with unique pictures on all the sides. They're just D6s. You roll them and you tell a story with those pictures. And so, you know, if there's a car, you tell a story about how the car went somewhere and maybe there's a lamppost and, oh, the car crashed in the lamppost. Or, you, you know, next time the car used the lamppost to guide them to the castle, which could be another dice. And so they're using these dice as ways to tell a story and i think anytime you can get kids imaginations going and storytelling going whether it is a storytelling game like that whether it's a role-playing game or whether it's you know a board game where you're telling the story of how you are defeating the dragon or how you are driving the settlers off your island when you get to spirit island you know whatever it is that's the cool part for them right they don't want to know the rules they want to drive the bad guys off so the story part, I think, is crucial for kids. Yeah, and I think that does definitely, at least for our kids, encourage kind of more what might be considered Ameritrashy games, more like adventure games. I was playing uh, Descent 2nd Edition with the cooperative app with my son pretty young as well, and those were great uh, experiences. Because a lot of those games have very simple inputs, like you move these number of spaces and roll some dice. And you can handle all of the AI, all of the enemy turn, all of the dice interpretation. You know, they can just roll the dice and feel cool they did, and you can be like, oh, you did 10 damage, and they don't, you know, they don't even know how they figured that out, especially at, like, age 5 or 6. They just feel awesome for having done it. It's like, hey, uh, use that card and you make a skeleton. Hey, look, there's a skeleton now. He's going to kill somebody, <laughs> you know? So now, of course, uh, I guess some of these games might be violent, so you got to decide what your sensibilities are. I don't shy away from that stuff too much, but hopefully uh, my son does not, you know, be <laughs> so far he's not a violent person, so I think that'll be okay. But, you know, some people aren't going to like that, so of course then you got to search a little bit harder for thematic games that fit kind of this mold that don't have the violence inherent in them. Sure. So, any final pieces of advice from you? Yeah, in the end, as much as we want our children to like the things that we like, so that we can spend more time with them and maybe also in a selfish way have more gaming partners. In the end, what should matter the most, and you said this, Peter, is the quality time you're spending together. So the moment it's not about that quality time anymore, the moment you start to feel your blood pressure raise because they're not playing the game right, try to step away, try to take a break. 
it's not worth messing up your relationship with your child for a while just so that you can have someone else to play Terraforming Mars with. Solo gaming is blowing up. We know that. We see how many great options are out there. Worst case scenario, you can just play some solo games by yourself and do something else with your kid. Uh, yeah, so my, my biggest advice is don't feel like this is something you need to force. Don't feel like it's something you need to push. Find whatever makes them happy. Find whatever is fun for them. And, you know, like I said, buy some ice cream afterwards. Associate good things with it. They might come along with you. They might not. Either way, it's fine. It's, it's a beautiful world. And that's such a good piece of advice. I mentioned earlier that if your kid is starting to get cranky, you should stop the game. Well, guess what? If you're getting cranky, you should stop the game as well, even if they're still ready to go. Because if either of you are getting frustrated or whatever else, it'll become a negative experience and a negative association with gaming. So when you feel yourself start to get frustrated, you know, just take a step back, pause the game Come back 30 minutes later, 45 minutes later. And the other thing is we have a lot more patience than our children. Well, that may not be true, but we certainly can sit down for longer periods of time than children. You have to remember every 15 minutes, every 30 minutes, they're going to need to get up and, and do something else. Their play is so much more active than board gaming that it's hard for them to stay focused for that amount of time. And and so break it up into chunks. And if either of you are done, then take a break. Now, a little bit of design advice for people trying to make games for kids. I, I think we've thrown a little bit of that in here today. Make sure there's a good story along with it. You know, if you're making a game for a kid, that is what's going to hook them. And not a story that we care about, a story that they're going to care about. You know, like I said, for my daughter, she didn't care that it was Yahtzee. It had My Little Pony in it. That's important to them. You know, make sure there's cool bits to the game, something that they can handle. Chunky bits. They like to, you know, they like that tactile feel. So if you're designing games for kids, I would say keep the rules simple, way simpler than you'd want, and make the theme something that kids would want, not something you're interested in. Yeah, and I would say make the input and what they do on their turn very simple, very quick to resolve, but also impactful in a tactile way. So in Flashpoint Fire Rescue, you get a small number of actions. It's really simple to resolve, especially in the family level game. There's not that many actions to kind of parse through. And they get to flip fire tokens or remove them from the board or save a hostage. It's very like clear that they are doing something in the game. In Horrified, you pick up those items, you smash Dracula's coffins, something is happening because of your actions. In Forbidden Island, you're getting cards, a little bit more abstract, but then you get these awesome treasure miniatures. So I guess I'll also say, if you can get cool bits, little miniatures that'll excite them, go ahead. Yeah, I don't know about you, but my kids never put out one fire in Flashpoint Fire Rescue, and we've played that game like 50 times. They only go and rescue people. I am literally a man on an island out there trying to like (laughs) put out all the fires everywhere. No one helps me. Yes, that happens quite frequently, at least on the family game. It's still pretty decently easy to survive, but that's a different review we've already done. Absolutely. All right. Well, no, I think this turned into a great discussion and even a little bit of a design discussion at the end there. All right, so everyone, have a great October. We'll have some spooky gaming for you next week. I think we're going to do Final Hour from Fantasy Flight Game, which is coming up uh, soon. Yeah, and then the week after that, we're going to do Zombicide Invader. So we are definitely going all-out horror month for October, so stick with us. Yeah, Zombies, Cthulhu, and the Universal Monster Squad. It's awesome. Definitely. All right, well, we'll see you next week with another Top 5 Review. Bye-bye, everybody. 
Thanks for listening to another episode of the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Please check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. If you want to reach out to us, the best place to talk to us all is on the Slack. See the show notes for details. Also, you can support us on Patreon. Check out patreon.com slash one stop. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next week with another Top 5 list. Do you want to leave me in? No, oh, no. Do you, you don't have any reaction to anything I said? Oh, okay. I'll do it that way. <laughs> in the end, what should matter the most, and you said this, Peter, is the quality time you're spending together. So, <laughs> crap. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> So when you feel your star, f- so when you see, jeez, <laughs> so when you feel your star, f- what the heck? <laughs> so when you feel yourself start to get frustrated, you know, just take a step back. Hey, Mike. Yeah. I got a little bit scared playing horrified. I bet you did. The kids were fine, though. <laughs> the kids were fine. <laughs> like, Daddy, why are you crying?